Hi, I'm Sabrina, and today I'm here with Maria Ryuman, who is the founder of Agora. I'm so glad that she's joining us, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for having me, Sabrina. Hello. Thank Hi. you so much for being here. Of I course. really appreciate you driving out here back in San Francisco. It's always a good excuse to leave the forest. It's good to be here. I, I'm so excited to talk to you today and hear about your journey and starting a company and where you're at today and everything, doing big things. And um, I want to start from the beginning of your story. So you were born in Russia and you moved to Israel and then your family moved to the UK when you were 13. Yes. And I read online that you learned English when you got to the UK. Yes. And I just want to ask you, like, how are those beginning years of your life? Because I imagine that could have been a lot of moving. Did you feel like an outsider in a lot of places? And how was it moving to a country that you didn't know the language? Yeah, um, great questions. I mean, when I was born in Russia, it was actually still the Soviet Union. Wow. So I was born October 19th, and then the Soviet Union officially dissolved December 25th. Wow. And essentially, when I was born, there was a huge migration of Jewish ex-Soviet people who wanted to leave what was the Soviet Union and go in search of a better life. Um, and my parents were two of those people. So we moved to Israel when I was four. And at that time, there was this huge ex-Russian community that had settled there. And Israel was also kind of like a melting pot because yeah. over the last, yeah, I mean, over the history of Israel, right, it's just been a story of Jewish people across the entire world coming um, to a place where they felt like they could set up new and in some cases better lives for themselves. So growing up in Israel was really interesting in that it was like so many people were immigrants. You were just surrounded by immigrants everywhere. Yeah. You know, I had so many friends that had grown up in Morocco and Ethiopia and Yemen and obviously the former Soviet Union. Um, and so that, it was definitely interesting, but it was also an experience of, you know, we didn't, we arrived not speaking the language and my wow. parents had, you know, never really known what a dollar was or like, I think they discovered the Beatles in the late eighties, roughly around the same time that they discovered McDonald's. Wow. So there was a real sense of, um, like wanting to assimilate. So yes. for the first part of my life, I actually refused to speak Russian. I only spoke Hebrew. I refused to even speak with my parents. Um, and then when I, got to the age of 13, my mother wanted to send me to England to learn English. Um, and I remember at the time really dreading it because I thought, well, having just gone through such a journey of trying to assimilate in one place, yeah. what would it be like? You're to starting over. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in hindsight, I'm so glad that I did it because I think that, I mean, for everything tied to starting a startup or, or really just starting anything new, it's such an amazing training ground because you do learn to be really adaptable and you learn to you know make do and you learn to just really come at things with a beginner's mindset yeah um, which yeah I think that part of my life was really amazing totally for. not fearing away from being new at something or potentially bad at something like speaking a new language or not understanding you know the cultural norms of a new society yeah. you're just you're used to diving into the new things yeah when I moved to London so I didn't I really didn't speak any English because for us in Israel I mean we learned our or I learned Arabic as a second language yeah and so English, how many languages do you know first of all I three fluently Spanish well French, I'm getting better. Wow. <laughs> um, but 
when when I moved to England, I essentially I was in this ESL class where I had a book that was maybe 500 pages and it was called Worldly Wise. And it essentially every week you had to go and learn, I forget, like hundreds of words of vocabulary and also a really intricate understanding of grammar. So I think I currently punctuate really well. <laughs> but that was something where just for weeks, I remember thinking if I didn't make any progress, I just wouldn't make any friends. So I remember I would come home and just try to like accelerate and get ahead of the next week. And then the week after that, in terms of worldly wise, because I was like, it's time to make some friends, you know? Wow. I bet you have better punctuation and grammar than most Americans or, <laughs> or born British people. That I don't know about, but I do. I use the colon and the semicolon, I would say more than the average person. They, they are very fun. Uh, they add so much. Me too. I actually totally agree with you. Those are my favorite ones. Mm. Um, okay. So you are, so you're in the UK, you're learning English, you're adapting, you're becoming a British little girl. <laughs> and okay. Then you graduate high school and you go to Oxford. Yes. Okay. So at Oxford, you study politics, philosophy, and economics, which is yes. a very renowned, serious major. That's what like Rhodes Scholars mostly study there. And um, at that point in your life, you're at Oxford, you're studying these subjects. What are you thinking you're going to do after school, after university? Yeah, good question. So growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. Okay. I think later I learned that probably wasn't that feasible. At which stage I thought, I mean, honestly, I thought I'd go into either journalism or politics. I always felt like to make an impact in the world, um, or rather, I always wanted to make an impact in the world. I think growing up in Israel, there's this concept in Judaism called tikkun olam, yeah. which essentially translates to fixing the world. So the premise is you should be aiming to leave the world better than how you found it. Yes. And I think especially when I was an existential teenager and I was trying to figure out, you know, what was the purpose of everything? That to me was the most profound meaning that I, it just struck me. I was like, yes, that is what I'm here to do. Um, and then thinking about how to do that, you know, at Oxford at the time, like I knew no one that was in startups. I forget how many people studied computer science, but it wasn't a lot. Yeah. Um, versus, right, the classes of history or PPE, um, they were huge. And so I thought I looked around and the most impressive people around me that I knew had made a huge impact by, you know, by going into journalism or reporting on these amazing stories or traveling to these really out there parts of the world and, you know, finding amazing stories and sharing them and amplifying their voice. And so I thought that was how I would make the biggest difference. That's what I was curious about. When you were there, your general peer group and sphere that was surrounding you, what were you guys talking about? What were you thinking about? Like, what did most people want to go do? Like, what is that environment characterized by? Is it like politics and philosophy and these I, I think old... It's a good question. I haven't thought about this in a while, but I think everyone wanted to go to the, to the unknown. So there was this huge push of people wanted to travel. And, you know, I had, I had a lot of friends that went and filmed sort of independent documentaries traveling through Afghanistan or traveling in different parts of Africa. Wow. And I remember, you know, I went to Pakistan um, after I got very involved in the, in the Oxford Union. Um, and I was amazed. I could sort of see myself, you know, moving there and again, finding people's stories and sharing them and writing about them. And I think especially then there was this real sense of adventure that also came of it, which was at least a lot of my friends, people didn't want to stay 
in London, right? People didn't want to work corporate jobs. People wanted um, to discover something new and to kind of challenge themselves in that way. So that became something that you were after as well. It just was the environment you were in. It's something you knew you were you were going for. Oh, for sure. I took months off and I went, I interned for an airline in Southeast Asia wow. for three months. So I was living between Indonesia, Malaysia and the Philippines. Um, I traveled through Burma with the university. I traveled through Pakistan with the university. I really, I tried to as much as possible sort of look at different opportunities that wow. weren't in the UK. And so... So during your time there, you were president of the Oxford Union, as you mentioned. And the Oxford Union is this 200-year-old debate club. In my head, I imagine it to be like Hogwarts, like super, I don't know, these traditions. And it's cool and it's renowned. And you bring some of the world's most famous leaders, activists, everyone. And you must have been 21 or 22 during that yeah, time. Yeah, 21. And I'm really curious, holding a leadership position like that and interacting with some of these amazing people, what types of skills do you think it gave you that you still use today? Were there any ways it shifted your mindset? Is there any stamps on like your present self that you felt like were, were formed during, during that experience? I think, well, one is it's, it was such a remarkable opportunity right because yeah. you invite speakers and they actually come <laughs> because yeah. the union carries with it it's like so much kudos and it's also had you know so many amazing people come and speak I think to me the resounding feeling I had when I was there was wow I really don't know so much mm. because I I came and I had the topics I was interested in but then I thought well you know, I'm here to really serve the student body. And yeah. so my job was actually to find speakers that everyone was interested in. And that's when I realized that there were just these huge topic areas that I truly knew nothing about. Mm. Um, and to me, that was really fascinating because I, I also looked at the committee around me and I realized, right, that there were people that had such profound interests in the nichest verticals where they kind of knew every expert and I would wow. ask the committee who who would you like to come and speak and people would I mean especially when it came to sports you know people would list sort of this like 30 top cricketers that are on my wish list <laughs> and I was like wow I can't even name one yeah so that then I, I think I really realized like wow people can go so deep into, into so many things yes and you almost sometimes when you're around so many brilliant people with like very specific broad passion like specific passions and in, in broad areas you kind of realize how much you don't know oh my god yeah all the time and I think that again was to me so eye-opening because I realized whoa so anything I want to learn about I can invite a speaker to come and learn about it um so I remember my first speaker that came was actually Tim Ferriss and you know, who is Tim Ferriss, which might be a very stupid question of mine. <laughs> well, t so Tim Ferriss, I mean, he's a writer, he's an investor. He now has a very successful podcast. Oh, okay. Called The Tim Ferriss Show. I have to check him out. <laughs> I think you'll like it. Um, but he had written, you know, The 4-Hour Workweek, which was this thesis about sort of hacking your life and the fact that you didn't need to spend the entire day in front of a computer. And at the time, I thought, you know, he was really cool, but when he came, there were people that came to the talk that had just read every single word that he'd ever written. They knew everything about his life. Their questions were so profound. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, this is yet another example of anything you want to learn about. The Oxford Union just facilitated that. Wow. That sounds like such an amazing experience and like resource that you got tapped into during that time. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. 
So you graduate from Oxford and then what, what was next for, for Maria at that point? Next was I went and did investment banking at Goldman Sachs. Okay. I have a question about this because I think so many young people do two, three, four, five years of investment banking after school. It's almost a stamp of approval in terms of like you can handle the hours, you can work hard, you learn these these skills. And looking back, do you think that experience gave you a lot? Are you happy you did it? Not about regrets, more would you recommend it for other young people after school? Oof. So I would. Um, and, and my perspective on it was, I think graduating from college, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I had yeah. a lot of different ideas, but I also realized, right, I wasn't going to move to the middle of nowhere and, you know, write my observations <laughs> yeah. as, a, as, as, a, as a livelihood. And I think also growing up, you know, m- my family had gone through so much uncertainty and instability that especially talking to my mother, who I've always been very close with, it was really important to her that I get a job that she called, you know, gave me skills. And yeah. it was never clear what these skills necessarily were. Mm. But I remember feeling like it was my duty to find the best brand name and the most skills forward type of profession. Um, and I think in many parts, I really wanted to make my mother proud. But also I felt like you couldn't go wrong with something like that. And I think that the things, I mean, most importantly, I think Goldman recruited such an incredibly talented class. The best thing that I got out of it are the friendships that, you know, still today, so many friends from my class are some of my closest friends. Um, and people have gone on to do truly amazing and innovative things. And I think for that reason, it was an amazing experience. And, and also you do learn a lot, right? You learn how yeah. to be in a professional setting. You do learn how to work crazy hours, like truly crazy hours. Um, I remember there was a nap room that at some stage was just constantly overbooked because... <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> it, people needed it. Um, but I, I think for that reason, you know, if you come out of college and you have a true passion and you know what you want to do, I would say definitely do that. You know, you don't need that stamp of approval. Um, and later in life, you realize that that stamp of approval doesn't matter. What matters is what it is that you're building or what it is that you're doing and how passionate you are about it. But I think the important thing whilst you're there is, you know, not to get sucked into the crazy hours and into, I think sometimes you can take a pretty myopic view and sort of say, I need to excel at this. And if I'm not excelling at this, it's just, it puts a lot of pressure on you versus saying, I'm here for a defined period of time, I'm going to make the best of it. But then I still have, you know, an entire world of opportunity ahead of me. That seems like you had a great perspective and were able to keep a really good sense of perspective during that kind of crazy experience. (laughs) Okay, so you would do Goldman Sachs. I bet you're really good at it. You see this, you know that you're going to be there for a limited amount of time. But in one sense, you do see this clear career path that that could be, it's you go to banking and you move up the ladder, you'll make money, it's stable, it's good, and you're good at it. And so what made you pack up your life and move to San Francisco? Can you tell me that story? Uh, yes, it was actually our mutual friend, Anthony. Oh. <laughs> um, so I, that summer I went to Burning Man. Yes. Really, because I just, I wanted to get away from it. I remember I turned off my Blackberry, I was thinking... Blackberry days. Oh my God, that red beeping <laughs> light. I'd forgotten about it and someone mentioned it to me recently and I thought, wow, that used to shape my <laughs> attention span. Um, 
So I went to Burning Man that summer. And coming back, I had a few days in San Francisco whilst I was waiting for my flight. And at that time, you know, I think I had like three friends in San Francisco. And I went for dinner with one of them. And he said that he had started recently working with a man named Joe, Joe Lonsdale, mm -hmm. who was one of the co-founders of Palantir and Adipar and had built this sort of these amazing companies and was this visionary um, who was just you know, really passionate about fixing big problems. And that at the time he was thinking of starting a fund. And so my friend was like, you should, you know, meet with him because he is looking to build out this fund. And he was like, you know, you've been a Goldman. Maybe there might be a fit for you to work together. So the next day we drove down to Joe's house in Woodside and we spent an hour and we actually bonded over the concept of tikkun olam. Oh, really? Um, and Joe at the time, I mean, I'd never met anyone like him. Yeah. You know, he was, I think, maybe like in his early 30s at that stage. And he was just talking about these grand societal problems and how you could fix them by fixing, you know, different workflows and different key aspects of how it is that these industries operated. And I, coming from a world where, you know, you almost weren't allowed to think that way. Mm. In, in London, there was much more of a, you progress up the rank, you get more experience. With more experience, you're allowed to have grander thoughts. This sense of hierarchy. Yeah, that there was much more a sense of closed doors and you needing to ask permission to open them. Um, and that permission often came, not in all circles, but definitely in some, with, with time. So the expectation was, well, after you've been in finance for, you know, 20 years, then you can start sort of asking some of these questions and at the end of it joe said you should move to the u.s you know we should we should like build this fund together wow because <laughs> i never heard of such a thing right i was used to again an interview process involving like 17 different fast round interviews and you have to do case studies and all yeah, this yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. yeah and it's yes and you have these intense you know interview days where you get interviewed by like 10 people in a row um and so I thought he was joking <laughs> more than anything. And so the next day I was actually driving, or a couple of days later, I was driving to the airport um, and Joe and Anthony actually called me together. Wow. And I remember standing at the airport with sort of, you know, when they make the announcements, like gate yeah. seven is boarding imminently. Of course. Um, and so I would like mute myself and then unmute myself. And the two of them were like, no, you know, we're really serious. Joe explained that he had a vision for this fund called ABC that would be focused on just solving really, really big structural problems where he would be looking at, you know, some of the largest industries in the world, a lot of which are very unsexy. So yeah. things like trucking and freight and, you know, home improvement and um, construction and logistics. And that by fixing core, really broken workflows that honestly aren't sexy and a lot of the best engineers hadn't spent time trying to fix them, you could actually improve how millions of people around the world do their work and you could bring huge value to these enormous areas of the economy. That's amazing because I think there's so many people that just naturally go towards starting a dating app or a social media website because website app because because I think people feel that they have, you know, these natural insights into those yeah. those industries. But clearly Joe and what he was building and you and Anthony, you guys were very much willing to to dive into these sort of unknown industries, unsexy industries and find the gaps and the flaws. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think people usually solve problems that they know. Yeah. And especially <clears throat> if you're thinking about people you know, in their early 20s at the time I was 23 wow. the main problems I knew were 
dating and my social life. And, you know, you, you, you tend to come at, and I think this is why a lot of consumer apps often get built, um, is because people solve the problems that they're familiar with. And when it comes to these very large unsexy industries, you know, the Venn diagram of people who know how to build tech companies and are passionate about building tech companies and people who understand how, let's say, an industry like construction works, that the intersection of that Venn diagram is actually pretty thin. And at the time, something that really inspired me about what Joe was doing was that he wasn't saying, let's, you know, build the next great photo sharing app. He was saying, let's really look at these giant industries that employ, you know, tens of millions of people um, in the U.S., and let's think about how to make their life better. And that, to me, really spoke to this real world impact. That yeah, and repairing the world and making it better yes. than you found it. Yeah. So he he obviously won you over. He he sold he did. it too I, well. That, that day, I decided to stay. And wow. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you about making those types of decisions in your life because. Of course, Joe is this amazing founder. So it's not like it's a it was a risk that could go so horribly wrong per se. But for you personally, you said you knew three people in San Francisco. You have this whole developed life in the UK and your network of Oxford people and you have a good job. And so how did you think about making that decision to pack up your life and move across the country, the world <laughs> to San Francisco? And it worked out. In retrospect, it worked out amazingly. But at that time, how did you think about it? What was your framework for risk-taking and decision-making in your early 20s? Well, I, th I think I had two. One is I like the Jeff Bezos way of thinking about, you know, one-way doors and two-way doors. Mm -hmm. And then the second constraint is really optimizing for impact. And so I remember thinking, I literally remember standing at the airport and thinking, Either this idea is crazy, because at that time I didn't even have a visa to the US. You know, I, I wasn't sure what <laughs> the logistics of any of this would look like. I didn't have a bank account in the US. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how this would work. Um, and I remember at the time thinking either this was going to be like crazy, but a great story to tell. And when you're 23 again, right, what's the downside? I was like, I can Definitely. always come back to London and, you know, get a job there. Or something amazing could really come of it. And so I felt like the downside was actually very capped because in, in my mind, your early 20s are so much about taking these big risks. And the upside was enormous because if it worked, I was thinking this could be an entire, I mean, this could take my life in a direction that just seemed so exciting and interesting and yeah. impactful. And your parents were supportive of this move? I mean, I called my mother and she was like, what? <laughs> and I, I, I started explaining. And she asked all the normal questions. She was like, well, but you've never worked in tech. Do you even know what venture capital is? Um, you know, you have an apartment and a life in London and you have this great job in London. But I think at that stage, you know, so much of it felt like, and again, I explained to her, that this just seemed like such a unique opportunity. And the downside was, well, if it doesn't work out, I can always come back to London. So I think she she was definitely apprehensive. Mm -hmm. But given, you know, only about a year beforehand, I was telling her I wanted to become a journalist in Pakistan. She thought this was a, a, a better version. Compared of, to that, like that gave it a good, a good scale. Yeah, it was like a better alternative to, to, to a negotiation. So getting to your company, Agora, you are at ABC and you decide to start a company. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing Joe supported that. Yeah, he was incredibly supportive. Joe, Joe's just been 
amazing. Ever since I met him, he's been like an incredible mentor, an incredible just the thought partner. And he, from the very beginning, he was super supportive because, you know, when we started Agora, I I knew I wanted to do something to impact the built environment. And I think, you know, sometimes people talk about they start companies because they know exactly the business model and they know exactly the product and they know exactly what they want to build. But our story was different. Yeah, that's what I want to <laughs> ask you about. So did you have a specific idea when you were starting this company? Nope. How did, how did that process go? All I knew was we were sitting in a room and we were thinking, we need to make the built environment more efficient, faster, cheaper to build. Mm. And, you know, walking around San Francisco, it's pretty shocking how unaffordable San Francisco is. As Definitely. Of, as of July 2021, the median rent for a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco is $2,720. Wow. Which is insane. Right. And in Soma, I remember a latte used to cost $7, right? Rent, in fact, another stat that used to shock me was that for 20 years, renters' income has grown more slowly than rent across the US. And even during the pandemic, I mean, the trend was just accelerated. The increase in rent prices across the nation in the year, in between, I believe it's June 2021 and June 2020 was actually the single largest increase in two decades. Wow. And you know, a lot of what we were thinking about was, well, so some of the reasons why cities are really expensive is because of regulation and it's because of policy. And a lot of it comes down to political, especially at the local government, things that need to get fixed. But another massive part of it was just construction costs and the process of construction was it was crazy to look at. You know, we live in a world where search engine optimization has had so many brilliant engineers spend countless hours making it infinitely more accurate. And then you look at construction and construction. Yes, it's almost completely looked over. Yes. And so so you have you you recognize there is a huge lack of young minds, technology funding, just like innovation in this general industry of construction and the build space. So how do you go about finding the specific idea? I'm, I imagine that you iterated a bunch of times and then how how did you decide, okay, this is the idea of what Agora is? Yeah, <laughs> we we hustled. We started and we said to ourselves, so there was a, there was a McKinsey study that came out in 2017. Yes. That said, tell us. Labor productivity, oh, please. Drop the knowledge. Any, any opportunity to share. <laughs> it said that, Labor productivity in construction had gotten 0.1% better since 1947 through 2010. Wow. Which essentially meant that across that time horizon, construction became 1x more efficient. When you compare that to agriculture, agriculture became you know, 16x more efficient. <laughs> Industries like manufacturing and you know, retail processes, they became 3% more efficient year over year. And you looked at construction and construction really was just an industry that was looked over. And so we set about trying to figure out what could we do to make buildings of any kind, right? Hospitals, schools, sports stadiums, large multifamily residential projects. What could we do to make them faster and cheaper to build? Yeah. And so for six months, we reached out to literally thousands of people on LinkedIn. Anyone that had anything tied to construction, city building, 
like we just literally went through LinkedIn. I have thousands of connections on LinkedIn, the wow. vast majority of whom I have never spoken to. Um, but we just try to add people and, you know, shoot them a note saying, would they be willing to take 20 minutes of their time to just tell us what their job looks like? So your approach was like what someone might say, talk to the user. You were like, let's 100%. go straight to the construction space, the builders, the contractors, the people funding the projects, whoever it is. And let's let's ask them, what are the problems you're facing every day? Yeah. How can we make it better, cheaper for you? Well, because the problem on a macro level was really obvious, right? You walk around San Francisco and all the time you see projects are delayed, projects are over budget. I mean, the Van Ness bus lane is like the blockbuster example of this, but <laughs> it started in 2001, which is the same year Tesla got started. And by the time we started the company in 2018, it was still getting built. So... The problem was obvious, but what we wanted to actually understand was where in the construction stack could we actually make a difference? And right, what did the lives of superintendents and purchasing agents and foremen and journeymen, like what were the different challenges that they faced? Because I think something that I learned definitely from venture capital was you need to understand the user yeah. You know, the worst thing you can do is sit in a dark room and pontificate about what you think things and look like. And just have be stuck on your idea because yes. you know it's the best idea ever and everyone needs to understand it eventually. Yeah, completely. Because, you know, we thought, well, this industry has been innovating, I mean, for literally hundreds of years <laughs> without technology. And so we wanted to really understand where did people feel pain? What did people find frustrating about their jobs? What took longer than it should? And apply to that the framework of, well we know amazing engineers and right we know definitely designers and salespeople and and business builders so let's bring them together to solve these problems so the idea that you settled on is what agora is today is you can tell me but essentially it's an amazon place for construction materials it's modernizing the supply chain right what what we realized was that for any commercial project um 60% 60% of the cost is in labor and 40% of the cost is in materials. And what ordering materials looks like mm-hmm. is essentially you have a lot of foremen walking around with a clipboard and a pen. They're writing down what they need, often for the next day. They'll sometimes take that piece of paper and give it to a purchasing agent or they'll take a photo of it and send it to a purchasing agent. But there's a lot of manual data entry. There's Sounds a l- very out of date. It is. And and the unfortunate thing is, right, we live in a world with a real shortage of construction workers. I mean, the CNN estimate I read recently was that we need one million more construction workers in the US to meet our demands today. Interesting. And we also live in a world where the complexity of what we're building has increased so much, but the tools with which we're building them, especially on the software side, haven't increased nearly as much. And so there what we realized was, wow, so 40% of the total project cost can be materials. And in the US, that's around $250 billion a year. That's crazy. So that's a $250 billion industry. And it's something that I've spent the last four years in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley. I've never heard one person mention that. Yeah. I mean, the the other thing that we realized was that when you build a building, right, you have your owner developer, they hire a general contractor whose job is to coordinate across the different trades. And then you have sometimes 20 plus trades, all doing their individual work, and all running their own supply chains. So the electrical vertical has its own nuances, but so does, you know, concrete, mechanical, masonry, 
excavation, roofing, landscaping. And each one of these trades has very sophisticated needs and have their own supply chains that they need to operate. And of there course, because materials are specific to right. different places. It's it's not something that can all just be made at one factory or... Right. And, and also there's a lot of dependencies between them because one mm. trade can't start until the other one has finished. And so you actually have a pretty complex sequencing game that's going on. Interesting. Okay. So you are working to modernize this industry and you've figured out there's a clear problem. You're mm -hmm. working to solve it. My question for the first year of building that company what were your biggest obstacles and specifically there's one thing great about working to innovate an industry that's overlooked but the the flip side is that the construction industry is one of the oldest industries in the world and i imagine they might have been you know set in their ways so how was trying to get people to a, to adopt your technology yeah that was actually the hardest thing about it for the first year the hardest thing was getting anyone to talk to us mm. You know, because we we came in as outsiders to the industry. And after six months of talking to thousands of people, we had coalesced that time and time again, the same point, pain points were coming up. And so we, you know, we built a mock of a product. We had a, a nice demo that essentially showed what it would look like. And then we tried to go and meet with people. And time and time again, people would schedule a meeting and then they would cancel it. Or we would show up and they would say, well, this is free, right? And we said, well, no, we're going to charge for it. And they were like, well, come back to us once it's built. I think no one wants to be the first mm. because as a company, there is risk that you're taking, right? You're going to have to train users on it. You're going to have to get to ask people to do something differently. And that switching cost is material. Yeah. So for the first year, I mean, it was tough. But what we realized is that there were early adopters out there who felt that pain so strongly. That they were willing to take yeah, the risk. Exactly. And so you just had to find those right people. And that was where it was really just about being persistent. You know, so many times we would drive for two hours to a meeting and then we would get there and then someone would tell us, oh, that person is actually not here. They had canceled the meeting but hadn't told us. There was, uh, I mean, so many times we went and we were like, oh, we're so close to making a sale and people would say yes. And then afterwards they would just ghost us and never reply again. Was there ever a time that you almost gave up completely on the idea? Was What, were, what was the lowest point of Agora for you? Oh my God, there's been so many ups and downs. I think a lot of it was just around getting that initial customer traction. Mm. But what ended up happening is that we found these first few early adopters and they really changed the game because then we were developing with real partners and we could also show them that we were really able to deliver a product that actually added a lot of value to them. And then the there was a National Electrical Contractors Association convention. It sounds very fun. It was, it was incredible. One of the best <laughs> weeks of my life um, in Vegas mm -hmm. um, for five days, which five days in Vegas was, it was a long time in Vegas. It is. Um, but that was really a game changer because there were, I mean, thousands of contractors there. And we went from this world where, you know, if we had three customer conversations in a week, we were thrilled to suddenly having a five-day period where we spoke to just hundreds of people stopped by the booth. And that, I mean, that was the wow. single biggest eye-opening experience because that was when 
to the point of talking to your customer, that was when we spoke to the single biggest influx of customers all at once. And that was also when we realized, okay, we're really onto something. We need to keep going. And also, you know, that was where customers five to 10 came from. And after that, customers 10 to 100, that was a really different story. So where you are today, how many customers do you have today? It's a hundred. Wow. Congrats on that. Thank you. And on that point, you recently raised a round of $30 million. 33. $33 million. <laughs> Congrats. And that's really a, obviously a lot of money and a lot of exciting things that are going to come with that. And you're going to be able to grow a lot, I'm sure. Going back to last year, 2020, Ooh. it's March. COVID becomes a real thing and things are shutting down. And what do you expect will happen to your company and how did you prepare? I remember going to the grocery store in Soma on, I think it was March 13th. That's my birthday, which is very sad that year because (laughs) it was the first day of COVID. It was. I remember it looked like Armageddon. There was just, there was, food was flying off the shelves. People were frantically searching for, you know, anything that looked like it could be stored for a long period of time. Um, Yeah. When, I mean, no one, so when COVID hit, every single investor of ours told us winter is coming. You've got to prepare to, you know, hunker down and wait it out. I mean, I was hearing all the time that construction was going to stop. No one was going to build anything. People were going to have to sit in their houses and job sites would be shut down. And at the time, I mean, we had planned to raise our Series A later that summer. But when COVID started, I mean, we really thought to ourselves, what if we never make it to that stage? So that's when I realized we needed to act fast and we needed to raise around then to make sure that the company could survive anything that happened. And there was so much uncertainty. I mean, I remember, you know, I remember some friends said, oh, yeah, we're shutting down our offices for two weeks and we'll reevaluate at two week cadences. And then two weeks passed and two weeks passed after that. And that that was like <laughs> what California did, at least in Los Angeles. They they said one week stay at home orders and then the next week is the next week as well. <laughs> then it became a month and they they sort of did it incrementally, which is probably a good thing, because had you known Starting that day, it would be a six-month lockdown. I, I think the world would have uh, kind of yeah. <laughs> gone to a word I won't say right now. But um, okay, so you, you raised a round really fast. Yeah. So you had enough runway to survive what you were. And I'm, I actually already know the answer. It went amazing for you, surprisingly. And your business grew eightfold during COVID. Yes. I mean, I had no idea this would happen. But what? I mean, construction volume actually increased during well, Why do you think that was? I mean, for our customers, it was, it was a lot of things. I mean, firstly, you had a lot of... So a lot of our customers be, were essential workers. And a lot of them from the very beginning, right, they work on power stations. They work on government projects. They work on things that are critical to our infrastructure. Um, and so... A lot of them, especially during COVID, were, well, they, they were still working. They had a lot more restrictions. They had reduced capacity, but they, they kept on working throughout because a lot of them, I mean, they provide services that are crucial. You know, you, 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 you can't stop can't that function kind of work. Exactly. You can function without them. Um, and, and I think there have been so many instances in the past couple of years where we saw just how important the work that our customers do 
right? In making sure that we have electricity and we have running water and we have the utilities that people need. It's the things you don't think about until there's a power outage or there is a storm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think about, I was in Austin, Austin? Yeah. during February, I think it was, and the city lost power for five five days or so. And really people couldn't function because you couldn't even use a toilet. Yeah. And there was no food because the grocery stores were closed because there was no power because the refrigerators, refrigerators wouldn't work. And you actually realize just how grateful you are for all of these just foundational things to our society yeah. that you don't think about. Yes. And we had, I mean, throughout COVID, so our customers were doing essential work. There were also a lot of projects, right, like redoing school classrooms or redoing university campuses that people wanted to do during that during time. During this time, it was a good, I did see a lot of that, like yeah. even on, um, even at Stanford, I think they did so much construction during this period because they were like, okay, there's no students here. Let's, let's use this yeah. at a time. And I saw it everywhere. I feel like any place that could use this as a time to remodel, they weren't risking profit because they weren't going to, you know, get people mm -hmm. in there anyway. And um, yeah, so I th that totally makes sense. Yeah. And and then also, I mean, just generally construction, the demand, the demand for housing grew, the demand for infra infrastructure. I mean, the latest infrastructure bill, that's huge in terms of the demand of the things that we need to build. Um, and so, yeah, we were shocked, but throughout COVID, I mean, our customer base just yeah it grew like crazy and my last question for you is what do you hope that agora is in 5 10 15 years i hope that what's your dream vision for agora i hope that agora is the one-stop shop where anyone working on a commercial construction project can find exactly what they need can order it at the best price and can have it delivered exactly when they need it in a way that makes managing your supply chain, but really in a way that makes actually constructing any form of building much cheaper and much easier to do. I really, really look forward to that because there's actually nothing that I hear more people complaining about than um, just how long and over length and frustrating and stressful that can like having to build something or redo something is it seems like an industry that is is ripe for change yeah and it happens all the time i mean projects are constantly delayed and constantly over budget and we want to make it as easy to order materials and to get the things that you need on a construction project as it is for a consumer to do on amazon Definitely. That's so exciting. Maria, thank you so much for being here. I really, so really fun. look forward to the future of Agora. I actually think it's going to change so many people's lives on, on both sides of the industry, um, customers and the people that work in it and everyone. And it's, it's a really amazing, exciting company that you're building. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sabrina. Of course. Um, once again, I'm Sabrina and I'm with Maria of Agora. Thank you so much for watching. I hope you have an amazing day.